aren't you glad that his grace is there in the middle of it to transform us? God has a rescue plan between the moment you believed in Christ and the moment you will see him. And his rescue plan is he wants to save you from you. Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. So good to see you all. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 1. Thank you, uh, musicians and singers, for leading us to the throne of grace this morning. Philippians chapter 1. Last week we started Philippians in a series I've titled Joy Unleashed, and that's my prayer for you, and it's my prayer for myself that as we go through this book, our joy in Jesus Christ as our supreme treasure would be unleashed in our lives, and other people begin to see it, and they become inquisitive and want to know why we're such happy people, and then we can tell them about the power of the cross. Philippians, let's go ahead and read verse 1 as well because we're going to dip back into that. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Hear the words of the gracious, sovereign God. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the power of the cross. Thank you that in your great love, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to take on human flesh, fully God, fully man, with two natures, united in one person. Thank you for uh, the brutal death that he endured for us, taking our sins, taking the blame. God, thank you for the power of the resurrection. Thank you for your spirit that you give to us, and thank you for your word, God. I pray that as we look at your word, Father, if there are people here who don't know the power of the cross, that you would open blind eyes and raise people up from the deadness of their sins so that their joy may be unleashed. For those who are your children here today, God, I pray that they would leave today understanding the power of the cross for their life, your grace that you've shown to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Help us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe you've heard of comedian Jeff Foxworthy. He rose to fame uh, with his infamous you might be a redneck if jokes. Uh, I don't know how much they resonated here in Santa Maria. I thought about sharing a few, and then I thought, well, um, they, they really connected in Texas But I don't want to insult you and say that that you wouldn't be able to get them. I just don't know the culture that well. So what I decided to do, after having been here for a couple weeks, I came up with a few, you might be from the Central Coast, if. I won't call them jokes yet, because you may not laugh. But (laughs) might here is is the operative word here, okay? You might be from the Central Coast, if. If you rejoice every September because you get your beaches back from all the vacationers from Southern California, you might be from the Central Coast. If you still haven't figured out how to drive through a roundabout, you might be from the Central Coast. Remember, might being the key word there. If you correct anyone who mispronounces Avila Beach, you might be from the Central Coast. Some of you are like, he mispronounced it just now. I'm going with the circles I run in. 
if you complain about the heat wave when it's 78 degrees outside, you might be from the central coast. And our last one, if you don't put barbecue sauce on your barbecue, you might need to get on a plane to Texas. All right, now those are funny. By your laughing, I can tell they were funny to me. There's another list that I would like to share with you, which uh, is far from funny, because the truth contained within this list is probably where a majority of Christians live or have lived. What we're going to be discussing today is grace. There are many ideas floating around uh, the church and Christendom about what grace is. So today we're going to dissect grace and understand the biblical meaning of grace. Today we're going to look at the anatomy of grace. Uh, It's so important for us to understand this word as disciples of Jesus Christ. Jerry Bridges in his book, Transforming Grace, Living Confidently in God's Love, a book I would highly recommend to you, he says you might not understand God's grace if... He says this, you know you don't understand God's grace when you live with a vague sense of God's disapproval. You don't understand grace. You don't understand God's grace when you feel sheepish bringing your needs before him when you've just failed him. If you've just blown it big time in your life and you feel like, how can I bring a need to God? If you feel that way, you don't understand grace. If you think of his grace as something that makes up the difference between the best that you can do And what God expects from you, you don't understand grace. You don't understand grace if you think God expects this from me. I'm going to blood, sweat, and tears get there. And grace is what makes up the difference. If that's your understanding, you don't understand grace. If you feel you deserve an answer to prayer because of your hard work and sacrifice, you don't understand grace. If you assume that you've sinned so many times that you've used up all of your credit of forgiveness... And you don't understand grace. If you feel like, God, I've done it again. Same sin. Here I am. Same words. I'm sorry for that. If you think that you've reached a point where God doesn't listen anymore, you've used up your credit of forgiveness, you do not understand grace. If you feel more confident before God, if you've been faithful with your quiet times, prayer, witnessing, etc., then you don't understand grace. If you think, I can come confidently before God right now because I've been faithfully reading my Bible and praying, if you think that way, you do not understand grace. If you can't honestly say right now where you're sitting, that you see yourself as blameless in his eyes, you don't understand grace. Right now, based on your previous week, if you don't feel blameless in God's eyes, you don't see yourself as blameless in his eyes, you don't understand grace because you are blameless in his eyes because of Jesus Christ. If you fear that the day may not go as well as expected because you missed your quiet time, you don't understand grace. Anybody live there? Run out the door. (gasps) Going to get in a wreck. Something bad's going to happen at work because I didn't have my quiet time. We don't understand grace when we do that. If you assume that you can do something to make God love you more or less, you don't understand grace. If you think because you read your Bible every day that God loves you more, you don't understand grace. If you think because you witness to people on the streets and at work, God doesn't love you more because you do that. If you think that way, you don't understand grace. We throw the word around. We read it through scriptures. The name of our church is Grace Baptist. 
it would be very important for us to understand what our first name is here. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to unpack grace and just see how powerful and beautiful a word it is. I think it's important that we hover over verses 1 and 2 again today because of the nature of grace as it relates to the Christian life. If Paul is about to give the Philippians instructions on living out the gospel in the city of Philippi, he must stress grace at the very beginning of his letter. The Philippians and Grace Baptist must get a grip on grace if we are ever to live in such a way that our joy in Christ gets unleashed. So the first truth that we're going to see in these verses is this. Obedience flows out of our union with Christ and is never the ground for our union with Christ. That's in verses 1 to 2 where Paul says, Servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus. We talked about this last week, but I kind of want to revisit the phrase, the saints in Christ Jesus. If you're a circler or highlighter, you like to write in your Bible, circle that phrase, saints in Jesus Christ, because you're going to need it someday. You're going to need to come back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, to remind yourself that contrary to what you feel, and contrary to what you think, and contrary to how you've acted in the last week, you are a saint set apart in Christ Jesus. And so our obedience flows out of that. When I say that our obedience to God flows out of our union with Christ and is not the ground or the basis of it, this is what I mean. Our relationship with God is secure. It's super glued. Our union with Jesus Christ is firm. And it's based not on our obedience. It's not based on our disobedience. It's based on God's grace. God's grace is what unites you to Jesus Christ, not church attendance, not giving, not being good, not how many hours you spend in your quiet time. What unites you to Jesus Christ is God's grace. That's where our union starts. And you can write that out on the side of those verses, the word union. That's what it means, saints in Jesus Christ. It shows us that we are united to Jesus Christ. And the ground or the basis of our union with Christ is not our obedience, but Christ's obedience for us. God's grace is what unites us to Jesus. So what is grace? There are two definitions I want to give you today for, for grace. The first definition is this. It's, God's grace is this. It's God's free, unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only punishment. God's grace is his free and unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only punishment. Or if you want to condense it down, it's this. It's God's unmerited favor. That's what grace is. It's free, it's unmerited, you cannot earn it. You can't earn God's grace. I don't care how much you pray, you're not going to pray enough to get God's grace by your doing the prayers. It's unmerited, you cannot earn it. Now, God gives common grace to all of creation, to all of his people. He sends rain, he gives us this beautiful weather, all that is God's common grace. God's saving grace comes to those who... By his spirit, he opens their eyes and draws them to himself. And they repent and they believe and they trust in Jesus Christ. That's his saving grace. Common grace he gives to all of humanity. But his saving grace comes to those who turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And and we would affirm that here, right? We are saved by God's grace. We believe Ephesians chapter 2, don't we? It's by grace 
through faith that we are saved, not of what? Not of works. Okay, the question is though, do you live by God's grace? Do you function in your daily relationship with him by grace? See, obedience flows out of our union with Christ. It's never the ground for our union with Christ. And if our union with Christ is by grace, then our obedience will be by grace. But we have to ask ourselves here, can we honestly say that we live like our union with Christ is by grace and not by our obedience? Okay, here's what I fear. Many of us function in, in a way that we think that if we are praying, if we are reading our Bible, if we are attending church, etc., then we are united to Christ. But that's not true. Our union with Christ is not based on our obedience. It's based on Jesus' obedience. It's not based on our performance for him. It's based on his performance for us. That's God's grace that unites us to Jesus Christ. It's not anything that we do. It's everything that he has done. So we are saints in Jesus Christ even when we're disobedient. That's the true condition of all believers. We are saints in Jesus Christ. What changes, though, when we are disobedient? If our union with Christ is not based on how obedient I am, what happens when I'm disobedient? Does it change the union? It doesn't change the union. If I'm praying, reading in my Bible, witnessing to people, giving, serving, my union's intact. If I'm being disobedient and not praying and not reading my Bible, not sharing Christ, not serving, my union with Christ is still intact. But what changes? What changes is not our union. What changes is our communion with God. Giving into temptations, neglecting Bible reading and prayer will not change your union with Christ. What will change is your communion with Christ. When we go grow comfortable with sin, this will affect the level of intimacy that we have with God. It affects our communion with God and not our union with God. Maybe if you think of it this way, you're, if you're fighting with your spouse, you're still married, right? Aren't you glad that just because you have a disagreement, it's like you're not married anymore? How many of us would actually be married anymore? It, nothing changes. The relationship is still intact, right? It's the same with God. The relationship stays intact even when we're disobedient. What happens is the fellowship or the communion with God changes. That gets hindered. It's like this podium right here. Let this podium here represent God. He is constant. He is unchanging. My relationship with God is based on his secure, free grace that he gives me. If I turn away from him, the relationship's still there. But what changes? My communion, the intimacy, the fellowship that I have with God changes. Not my union. He's still there. I'm the one that has turned away. He doesn't turn away from me. I turn away from him. But the union is still there. So it's not based on my performance, but Jesus' performance. And the good news is that my consistency in prayer, joining others in corporate worship, Bible reading, meditation, memorization, giving, serving, etc., do not make God love me more or less, but these activities do help foster that relationship, don't they? Aren't you glad that your relationship with Christ, that your union with Christ is not based on if you read, the Bible, if you pray, if you share Christ, aren't you glad? How many of us looking over this past week would say, based on my performance, I'm united with Jesus Christ. 
If you're like me, I'll look over the past week and say, ooh, I dropped the ball there, dropped the ball there, dropped the ball there, dropped the ball there. But grace says, Jesus never dropped the ball for you. Obedience flows out of our union with Christ and is never the ground for our union with Christ. Jerry Bridges says this, The realization that my daily relationship with God is based on the infinite merit of Christ instead of on my own performance is a very freeing and joyous experience. Isn't it when you understand grace, it sets you free? It's scandalous. Grace is scandalous because we're doers, aren't we? By nature, we are doers. We like to do lists. I want to know what I have to do to be made right with God. We're doers. We get on what Bridges calls the performance treadmill. We think if I do and do and do, do all these things, then God's going to love me more. Then I'm going to be made right with God. And Grace says, no, Jesus has already done it. That's freedom. If you think that God loves you more when you pray and that he loves you more when you read the Bible, you don't understand grace. You can't make God love you any more than he does. No act of service, prayer, giving, etc. will make God love you anymore. Bridges also says, to the extent that you are clinging to any vestiges of self-righteousness or are putting any confidence in your own spiritual attainments, to that degree, you're not living under the grace of God in your life. See, living by grace instead of works means you are free from the performance treadmill and you no longer think, I'm going to bring buckets and buckets of my labor and pour them out before you, God, and you're going to love me now. I'm just going to serve more, God. You'll love me if I serve more. You'll love me if I pray more. You'll, you'll love me if I do more, God. And God says, no, that's not grace. God just says, don't bring buckets of your labor and pour them into my fountain of living water. Grace just says, come and drink from the fountain of living water. Just come and drink. It's free. It's not bringing buckets and buckets of our labor before him to earn and to to sweat it out, to earn his favor. Grace is God's unmerited favor that he gives to guilty sinners through Jesus Christ, not through things that we do. Obedience flows out of our union with Christ and is never the ground for our union with Christ. But do you feel the tension? Some of you are very uneasy. You see, that's the one thing about grace. Grace is very uncomfortable. It makes us uncomfortable because we are doers by nature and we want to perform for God. Grace comes along. This is Jesus has already done it. If you feel that tension... Will it lead to laziness? Well, if God loves me, then some people get uncomfortable because they say, well, then that means people aren't going to do anything. If God doesn't love me anymore when I do things for him, then won't this understanding of grace lead to ungodly living? Yes, for some people it will. But those who respond to God's grace this way prove that they don't understand grace. If you truly understand that your access to God is based solely on the merit of Jesus Christ and not what you do or don't do for him, then you will want to do the things that foster your relationship with him. If God loves you unconditionally and no act of your own can make him love you anymore, then your response should be those very actions. When you realize how gracious he is to you, then you'll want to run to him. You'll want to obey. You'll want to read your Bible. You'll want to pray. You'll want to give. You'll want to serve. You'll want to do all of those things because those things don't unite you to Jesus Christ. 
God's grace unites you to Jesus Christ. So that's definition number one. It's God's unmerited favor. And some of you, I would say today, get off the performance treadmill. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've turned from your sins, you've trusted in his death and resurrection for you, get off the treadmill. You can't please him any more than Jesus already has. Now, Paul does pray in Colossians 1, says he prays that we would live lives that are pleasing to him. So there is a sense in which we do please God, but getting our union with Christ, we can never do that on our own. Second point today is this. Grace does not merely excuse the bad things that you do. Grace transforms you out of the bad thing that you are. Let me read that again. Grace does not merely excuse the bad things that you do. Grace transforms you out of the bad thing that you are. Look at verse 2 again. Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Talking about grace here, dissecting it. Grace is a grace that transforms. The grace that comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is a grace that transforms you. That's why Paul begins his letters by saying, grace to you. It's not just a formality. It's not just a greeting. He wants God's grace to come to the recipients of his letters. He mentions grace. Why? Because grace not only excuses and covers and forgives sins, and that's great, but guess what? Grace also transforms us. And if you stop with an understanding of God's grace that it's just his unmerited favor or it's just his simply taking away my sins, then you will abuse grace. If you think grace is just that God forgives me because of Jesus and that's your only understanding of grace, you'll abuse grace. Because grace is like a coin and it has two sides. One aspect of God's grace is that it forgives you. The other aspect of God's grace is that it transforms you. So here's the second definition of grace. It's God's power and divine assistance mediated through the Holy Spirit, which comes to us as a result of God's unmerited favor. Or you could say it this way, it's God's unlimited power. So grace is like a coin. One side, God's unmerited favor. You can't earn it. The other side, it's God's unlimited power. God's grace gives power to sinners to change them. Through the Holy Spirit, he conforms us to the image of Christ by his grace. It's, it's power. That's why in 2 Corinthians twelve nine, we all know the verse, my grace is sufficient for you. It's not, Paul's not talking about the forgiving side of grace there. He's talking about the unlimited power of God's grace. Paul has a thorn in the flesh saying, God, please take it away from me. And God says, no, my grace, my unlimited power is sufficient for you as you deal with this thorn in the flesh. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. It's his power. So God's grace forgives. And God's grace transforms. And so many of us stop with just the forgiving aspect. And we need to preach it. But the other side is that God's grace transforms. Imagine a student doesn't write a paper for his class and he shows up to the teacher and he says, I, I didn't get to the paper last night. Uh, you know, I was 
in the dorm, you know, watching a game, and I, I just didn't do the paper. W- will you give me grace? If the teacher says, yes, turn it in whenever, that's not truly grace. You know what grace is? The grace is the professor saying, I'll tell you what I'll do. I had dinner plans with my wife tonight. We're going to go on a date. And I had a babysitter lined up to take care of the kids. What I'm going to do is I'm going to call my wife. I'm going to cancel our dinner date. I'm going to call the babysitter and say, "Uh, you don't need to do that because my wife's going to be at home. And then you and I are going to go to the library and we're going to check out all kinds of books. We're going to open them. We're going to read them. We're going to study about what you were supposed to write a paper about. And as we talk about it in dialogue until 10 o'clock at night and I give up my evening for you, then you are going to go write the paper and then you can turn it in tomorrow. That's grace because it transforms someone and it doesn't just leave them in their situation and say, forgiven. There was forgiveness there. I'm going to forgive you, but you're going to turn the paper in tomorrow and you're going to do the work and it's going to cost me. See, grace is not merely excusing something. It's also transforming. Grace transformed the student and empowered him. See, grace always costs somebody something, and grace always transforms. Grace does not merely excuse the bad things that you do. Grace transforms you out of the bad thing that you are. And hearing that you're a bad thing makes some of you uncomfortable. But we're sinners, and only Jesus is perfect. And we're in the process of being transformed right now. So that we are bad things. Yeah, we're in Christ Jesus. We're saints in Christ Jesus. We got our identity in him. But we're still bad things, aren't we? Anybody done anything bad last week? It's because you're a bad thing. You're a sinner who needs to be transformed and not merely forgiven. So Paul begins his letters by saying, grace to you. He knows the Philippians are children of God. He knows they have been united with Christ by God's unmerited favor. But he wants them to experience God's transforming power his grace in their lives because they are still sinners in need of change. That's why Paul says grace to you. He says it in verse two and he says it at the end of the letter. Two bookends, grace to you and grace to you. Why in the world does Paul have grace on both ends? Because they're sinners that need to change. John Piper says this, at the beginning of his letters, Paul has in mind that the letter itself is a channel of God's grace to the readers. Grace is about to flow from God through Paul's writing to the Christians. So he says, grace to you. That is, grace is now active and is about to flow from God through my inspired writing to you as you read the words, grace to you. But as the end of the letter approaches, Paul realizes that the reading is almost finished and the question rises. What becomes of the grace that has been flowing to the readers through the reading of the inspired letter? He answers with a blessing at the end of every letter. Grace to you or grace be with you. May grace be with you as you put the letter away and leave the church. With you as you go home to deal with a sick child and an unaffectionate spouse. With you as you go to work and face temptations of anger and dishonesty and lust. With you as you muster up courage to speak up for Christ over lunch. See, that's grace. God's grace coming to us through the word of God. And then when we receive God's grace and it does its work in our life, then what, what Paul talks about in verse two happens. We get peace 
from God. Peace on the front end of salvation and peace through every trial because we experience God's forgiving and transforming grace. So Paul says grace to you and peace. He wants God's unlimited favor, unmerited favor to come to them, his unlimited power, but he also wants peace. Why does Paul want peace for them? Because he knows some of them aren't believers who are sitting there in that church listening to that. And if you're here today, let me tell you that your biggest problem in the world is not that you don't have a job. It's not that this situation's happening in your family. It's not that you have a conflict with your neighbors. Every human being's biggest problem in life is how in the world do I get reconciled to a holy God? That's your biggest problem. How in the world? I was born dead in sin. I've not only... Was I born dead in sin? I've shown that with my life. I've rebelled against God's good, gracious commandments, a holy God. How in the world do I get reconciled with him? That's the biggest problem with all of humanity. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your biggest problem has been taken care of. The rest of it is downhill from there. I'm not trying to, you know, Talk lightly of your problems and your circumstances and what you're going through. But if you've got whatever issue is causing you turmoil in your life, that pales in comparison to how you're going to get made right with the Holy God. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your biggest problem has been taken care of. The rest is downhill because God gives grace. He gives power in the midst of every situation for his children to transform them. And you can experience that kind of peace in the midst of any trial because the Philippians were going through it, suffering, persecution, internal fighting in the church, disunity. And Paul says, peace to you. But the great thing about God and his grace is that he wants to change us and he wants to transform us. You see, God has a rescue plan for your life. After you've been saved from God's holy wrath and saved from the consequences of your sins, the forgiveness side of grace, the unmerited favor, thank God he just doesn't leave us there. Aren't you glad God just doesn't say, December 3rd, 1978, you trusted me, you're forgiven, you're justified, you're made right, you're a child of God, you're going to be with me forever. See you on, your, on the day you die. Aren't you glad he doesn't leave us? Aren't you glad he loves us enough to transform us in between the moment we trust in Jesus Christ and we will see him face to face? Aren't you glad that his grace is there in the middle of it to transform us? God has a rescue plan between the moment you believed in Christ and the moment you will see him. And his rescue plan is he wants to save you from you. Because we're all selfish And we all want our own way. And he gives us a spouse to rub us at certain times in order to make us more like Jesus Christ. And he gives us children. And he gives us co-workers. And he gives us neighbors. And he gives us (laughs) mother-in-laws. Because he loves us so much. He says, I'm not going to leave you right where you are. I want you to look like my son. And my grace is going to transform you. And the way that I do that is that I put you in situations and in circumstances for you to call out 
for my grace. And that's why James 4, James says, what causes fights? What causes quarrels? Is it not your passions are at war within you? You want and you don't get, so you fight. Why do people fight in their marriage? Why do I fight with my wife? Because she wants something and I want something and we don't get what we each want. Why do our kids fight? Why do you fight? Why do your kids fight? James says it's because we don't get what we want. And he says, you do not have because you do not ask. And you know what we don't ask for? We don't ask for God's grace. Because later on in in about verse 9 or 10, James says, God gives more grace. God gives grace. And James says, some of us ask for grace to spend on ourselves. I just want your grace, God, because I want my life to be easy. And God says, it doesn't work that way. You ask for my grace, I give you my grace in the midst of your circumstance, in the midst of your hardship, and that's what transforms you, and then he gets the glory. We just want to hit eject, and we just want to escape. But God loves us enough to bring people into our life to say, I want to help, help transform you by my grace by using them because you need to be rescued from you. That's grace. And when you understand that, then you get peace through your trial. John 1.16 says, And from him, his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Jerry Bridges, again, this is the amazing story of God's grace. God saves us by his grace. He transforms us more and more into the likeness of his son by his grace. In all our trials and afflictions, he sustains us and strengthens us by his grace. He calls us by his grace to perform our unique function within the body of Christ. And then again, by grace, he gives to each of us the spiritual gift necessary to fulfill our calling. As we serve him, he makes that service acceptable to himself by grace and then rewards us a hundredfold by grace. Grace is a beautiful word, isn't it? We've only scratched the surface of it. Grace unites us to Christ. Grace always costs somebody something and it costs Jesus his life. Grace forgives you. Grace transforms you. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace is God's unlimited power. Grace does not merely excuse the bad things that you do. Grace transforms you out of the bad thing that you are. That's grace. May God's grace be with you today as you go home to deal with a sick child and an unaffectionate spouse with you as you go to work and face temptations of anger and dishonesty and lust, with you as you muster up courage to speak up for Christ over lunch. Let's pray. Father, we just say thank you for your amazing grace. It is amazing. We don't deserve it. And we could never, ever earn it. It's free. And that makes some of us uncomfortable, God, because we're doers. Would you help us to get off the performance treadmill as a church and begin living in the freedom of what Jesus Christ has done for us through his cross and resurrection. Thank you, Father, that you love us enough to transform us in the midst of hard and difficult situations and circumstances. Thank you for coming up with a rescue plan to rescue us from us. Thank you for doing it by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.